Welcome to the Inside Carolina podcast, presented by Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Get 15% off your online order with the promo code HEELS15. Go to jerseymikes.com slash order now. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Greg Barnes and Jason Staples. You're listening to the Inside Carolina radio show, sponsored by Jersey Mike's of Chapel Hill. Gentlemen, we meet on Wednesday doing this Syracuse preview pod a little bit earlier in the week than normal. Uh, life gets in the way, and sometimes life is more important, so we're doing this a day early. So, Greg, I'll start with you. That being said, uh, Fedora didn't have much to say in his post-practice update with the media, but one thing he did mention is when he asked was asked about quarterbacks available, he said, Elliot, Ruder, Manny Miles, and even – Ratliff Williams. So one of the big questions on Twitter was a Cade Fortin update. I think that at least for this week speaks volumes uh, with what Fedora shared after practice. Yeah, for sure. And I think anybody that that watched the game and watched the play where he got hurt, it was somewhat of a fluke injury. Uh, Nick Polino was trying to to block and uh, after Fortin was hit, it was a pretty tough collision. Polino fell on Fortin. Uh, and kind of twisted his his right uh, leg to where it kind of put a lot of pressure on the knee. Fortin, of course, uh, was in a lot of pain. Uh, he left. You know, he was able to to walk off the uh, field and into the locker room, but he was he was hobbling, and um, you know, it appeared that he had you know a brace on that right leg when he came back in sweats in the second half. So, uh, definitely think it's fair to say that he's not going to be available this week and probably for the next couple weeks. We do not know the severity uh, of the injury at this point in time. Uh, we're, we're trying to figure out exactly what it is. But we, we will report that once we get uh, confirmed information. Larry Fedora, of course, does not discuss that. Uh, but Nathan Elliott, all that being said, is preparing to start this game on Saturday at Syracuse. Uh, I think he played one of his better games that we've seen him play against Virginia Tech. Uh, a great pass to Carl Tucker, set up that 80-yard run. I know a lot of people uh, kind of harping on that missed throw to Anthony Ratliff-Williams, and for obvious reasons, I asked Nathan about that, and so kind of a, you know, it's kind of a, a two-part deal where uh, he was surprised he was that open, but he also expected the safety to roll over because that was coming off a, a corner blitz, and so he was trying to lead Anthony outside a little bit and just, just throw it a little bit too far to his left. But otherwise, I thought he played you know, a pretty solid game, and North Carolina certainly is going to need that if they hope to just spring the upset at Syracuse on Saturday. Jason Fortin comes in, gives them life. We talked about that uh, last Sunday with you and Buck, and now perhaps they're right back where they started uh, with Elliott, the guy. How does the team, uh, specifically the offense, continue to adjust, or how do they bounce back and forth um, with quarterback position, I know it's supposed to be the same or relatively the same with whoever's back there, but it's just not. Your thoughts on, you know, the the bouncing back and forth, and now Elliott seems to be the starter for Syracuse. Well, um, the way that they respond is by not scoring in the red zone. I think that much has been established. Um, yeah, beyond that, uh, really, I mean, what you're trying to do in terms of adjusting is uh, you're trying to uh, just find the things that you're that the new guy 
you know, or in this case, the the same guy who keeps finding himself in the starting role, you figure out what what you can what he can do well and do that the be- do that as much as possible and try to try to limit what you're asking of him in terms of uh, in terms of putting him in situations that require him to go out and and do things that might be beyond his capacity. So so that's really all you're doing. The problem is that you're not good enough around him to to be able to just take like an Alabama perspective or the, an Alabama approach, which is to say, well, we'll just run it down their throats until they can they, they have to bring everybody up and then we can just let them throw over the top. I mean, that would be the ideal, but uh, no, what you have to do is you have to figure out, okay, th- these are the few concepts that he likes to likes to throw uh, that he has shown he throws well, and that's what we're going to focus on. Greg, that kind of brings up, Jason mentioned red zone, and that brings up a question off Twitter that I thought was actually a pretty good one, uh, and I'll just read it. Fedora scripts so many, or scripts his first so many plays, does he also script red zone plays, or are they down and distance specific in red zone, geared to proximity of goal line, and all that? So we saw, to Jason's point, we saw Carolina run it down uh, Virginia Tech's throat and then they get in red zone and do what they do and a lot of people did not like Elliot being put back in there in the red zone so how does Fedora work the red zone angle I mean the stats over the years have said they're great in the red zone but I'm not buying it this year no matter what they say I see what my eyes can see your thoughts on this question and then how does Fedora you know what's his approach down there well, first thing, let's talk about Nathan Elliott and the diamond package. And that's that's when he went in uh, in the red zone, I believe, twice. The first time there was a bad snap and there was the fumble that was a six-yard loss. And I think the second time there was a, a no gain on the play. The reason that Elliott went into the game on those particular plays is because the coaching staff uh, did not think that Kate Fortin was quite ready for those specific packages. That's it. I mean, it, was just, it wasn't a matter of trying to get cute or anything like that. It was a matter of they wanted to run certain plays. And so whatever quarterback can run that play, you put him in the game. And that's and those are the, running plays. I mean, those are running packages. So that, I mean, that's, right. yeah. And the week before, they had a lot of success doing that exact package with Chad Surratt. Uh, so I imagine that was based around the idea of maybe having Surratt available. Of course, Chaz was not available with that wrist injury. And so Nathan became the guy that they wanted to use there. Um, and so that that's the reason that Nathan went in the game on those plays. Now, if you want to say you know, hurt rhythm, whatever, you certainly can say that. Fedora would argue with you on that, but you know, that's, that's a different story. Now, in terms of red zone, uh, I think the best way to think about it is this. Yes, Fedora and his staff script the first, you know, it ranges from 12 to 16, 18 plays of a game. And that's one of the reasons you saw Cade Fortin start against Virginia Tech because they could actually script those plays out. He knew what to expect going into the game, and it makes it kind of an easy transition for him instead of just putting him in like for the third series. That's a good way to get him started. They also kind of script for every situation, though. And what I mean by that is let's talk talk red zone, for example. Larry Fedora has tracked all these – uh, stats since he started doing uh, offensive coordinator work at Middle Tennessee State back in 99. So he knows how many red zone plays he's going to have every game. 
he knows how many goal line plays he's going to have every game. He told me this summer, we talked about that. Typically, they have one to two plays at the goal line per game. Uh, he knows how many third and longs, how many third and mediums. And so what he says is, okay, we have, you, let's say, I think the number seven, third and mediums a game. We'll use that scenario here. And so what they do is they look at what the opposing defense likes to do on those uh, situations down in distance. And they say, okay, well, we're going to put in maybe these five plays. He likes to use a screen. So you, you, you add a screen to it. Now you're down to even fewer plays that you have to pick and choose from. And they come up with a set number of plays for each of these situations. You know, whether it's third down, whether it's two minute, whether it's red zone, whatever it may be. And they practice those over and over and over again in that specific game week. So that when they get to game day, they're not looking through 40 red zone plays to call, you know, when it's first and goal at the one. They only have you know, two, three, maybe four plays for that specific situation. And they have to decide, okay, which player are we going with? And that's one of the reasons Fedora has always said, you know, the, the idea that an offensive coordinator is such a big deal in his scheme, uh, it kind of undervalues exactly what they do throughout the week. And they, they set all that up so that you're really just saying, okay, I'm just going to pick A, B, C, or maybe D. That's what we're doing on this specific play. And, and that's and how. Just to, just to to jump in, that's not just in Fedora's system. That's how it works generally all the way up to the NFL level. And, you know, people don't typically understand this, but that's what those laminated play sheet, play call sheets are that you see these guys have is those are broken down by down and distance, and, you know, situation, goal line, even down to the hash mark of if we're on this hash mark from the three-yard line, this is the play we're calling. And that's predetermined generally in the week. So, like you said, A, B, C, D. I mean, you, you know what you're calling. And I think there's some, there's some romanticized vision of this offensive coordinator who's got like four books that are you know, 300 pages thick and he's like flipping through them as the game goes on. And he's got this gut feeling that this player over here is going to work right now. And he looks like a genius when it hits. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. It doesn't work that way. I mean, I'm sure there are people that, that have tried that in the past and I doubt they've had any success. Um, you know, maybe a Steve Spurrier type, for example. But, but yeah, even Spurrier like would, would script. Even Spurrier had had a lot of that stuff going. And the thing, what would what what would happen with Spurrier is he would get a feel for when to call what on the script or on his on his sheet, you know. And he would he would see to the pants more than most guys. But the other thing that he would do is he would just tweak, like, okay, well, we've done this route combination this many times, and all I have to do is make this change to this. So it's the same call, same protection, same formation, but I'm going to change. I'm going to tag this route slightly differently because of something that they just showed. And then we're going to score on that's the changes that you see these guys make. Yep. So Tommy, to answer your question, it's a matter of what your definition of script is, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, we, we know that to start the game, they script plays, but they also script for every single situation. And that's, that's really how it works. I definitely want to stay on this topic for a while, but first let me tell you about Jersey Mike's subs of Chapel Hill. Hill's 15. That's all you need to know. 
Hills 15 gets you 15% off your everyday online order at Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill and in the surrounding areas. Use the code for online orders at any of those Chapel Hill, Hillsborough, and now Chatham County stores, 15% off your whole order. Support the Inside Carolina podcast. Thank Charlie, Clint, and Griffin at Jersey Mike's of Chapel Hill for their continued support of the Inside Carolina podcast. Use the code HILLS15, get 15% off. It's that easy. JerseyMikes.com front slash order. It'll show locations nearest you. Click on your order, pick your favorite sub or subs at checkout. Enter the code HILLS15, 15% off. Skip the line, head straight to the register. Grab your food and you're on your way. Do it today. Place an online order at one of those five Chapel Hill, Hillsborough, and Chatham County store locations. Super easy process. Just remember the code. Hills 15. Get 15% off and you're on your way. So let's dig a little deeper into scripting. Jason, say the first 15 plays of a game are scripted. Are you running those plays no matter what? Or is there a variation off some of them? Uh, so say you, you have first and 10 and you lose 10 yards and your second scripted play is, a you know, a zone read running play. I mean, do you scrap that? Do you go to something else? How exactly does it work in your experience? And it's like, I watched Trubisky in the pros until he blew up and had the six touchdown game. They, they talked about how good he was on the first drives of games because he knew the plays they were calling, but then when it got, out of the script, it got more difficult for him. I'm not so sure if that was the case, but anyway, you explain to me more of that scripting, at least the opening series or the opening 14, 15, 20 plays or whatever they normally do. Yeah, in my experience, the way that you do this is that you script for situations. So the first, first and 10, we're running this. The second neutral down, or the you know, the first, so you got, you know, your neutral down play. So first and 10, you got your drive opener. You know what you're going to run on the first play for sure. Depend Now that can change depending, you know, you get the ball on the half yard line on your own half yard line and, you know, you might run something different. So that can change a little bit too. But generally speaking, the way this works is our first, first and 10, we know what we're going to run. And then we're, we're prepared with a script so that, you know, if we get positive yardage that isn't a first down, then our second play is going to be this. If we get a first down on that, then we move to our second neutral down play. And then if we, you know, wind up in third and third and three, some, some, somewhere, then we run our first third and third down and short play, you know? So what you do is you script situationally so that you don't get stuck in a, all right, well, we've got, you know, we're running zone read on first down and somehow we fumble and it's, you know, second and 17. And now we're supposed to be running, you know, ISO so that we can we can get into a third and manageable. Well, now that ain't going to be third and manageable. We're going to go to our first, second, and long call is what we're going to do. Because what you're trying to do with the, with the script, there's two real aims, and, and different coaches take it a little bit differently. But what you're trying to do is, you're, first of all, you're trying to probe the defense a little bit. You're, you're, you've, you know what you saw on film in terms of this is how they've responded to this formation and these particular looks. And one thing you want to do is you want to get a look at exactly how they prepared to respond to those specific looks that you're going to show them right away. So you get it, you get a chance for them to show their hand and you want to use that opening script to use some motion, to use some formation variation. And actually you'll see a lot of times teams will, will show more formation variation 
and you know more distinct different stuff in the first 15 plays than they will the rest of the game combined because what you're trying to do is you're trying to probe okay when we go two by two they cover this way when we when we go two by two nasty splits so shorter splits then they do this when we line up you know quads they do that so now we know kind of how they prepared and that can set us up with some of the contingencies that we've set into our game plan so that's the probing part you know it's kind of like boxers circling each other you know kind of getting a sense of rhythm and defense you know with a few jabs in that first round then you have you know the 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 approach where it's we identified some things that we think we can hit on and we're going to try to score on that first drive by hitting specifically at a couple weaknesses that we've identified in what they do versus what we do. And we think we can scheme this up right away. We're going to do that. And usually some kind of balance is struck between those two poles to where you're, you're both forcing them to reveal what they want to do. And you're trying to script it up so that that first drive is successful with some sort of, you know, shot play or something that's going to take advantage of something that they showed weakness on and on, on film. And so what you do is you script all that up based on down and distance potential, you know, again, all the stuff that Greg just talked about. And that is, uh, and then that extends to the rest of the game. So you have your, your opening script on these are what we're going to do on these first situationals, but then you've got all that other stuff underneath them. You may have, you know, eight or nine second and medium plays. Or, you know, you may have, you know, seven third and long plays. I mean, that's actually quite a few. But, you know, you, you're going you're gonna to have those available to you, things that you repped. And the stuff that you didn't rep in practice that week is effectively not available. You can't call it because you can't execute it. And that's the other thing that people just don't appreciate is the level at which the script not only has to be written during the week, but you've got to rep everything you're running. And you've got to rep it against all of the possible looks that they could bring on defense. So you have to rep this play against the six or seven permutations of, you know, defensive formations and blitzes and different things that in different coverages that they've shown against that look in that down and distance. You have to be prepped for that during the week. If you haven't done that, you can't run it because you can't, you can't execute it. The players won't know what to do. They won't be able to respond quickly. So it's not like Madden. It's not like a video game where you can just call the play and, well, yeah, you know, they know what to do. He's got to run a post corner. Yeah, but that's not how that works. You have to rep it. You have to rep that specific play against that specific look, against that specific coverage in order for it to go well. And if you haven't repped it, it's not available. Great reference to Madden because I think those games have created more offensive coordinators across the country in the world than anything that think they can run stick nod and it works every time uh, because it works on Madden. Greg, I'm not done with you yet, but I want to tell our listeners about HillsTravel.com. It's the easiest way to book travel to big UNC away games. Right now at HillsTravel.com, they're offering a package to Chicago to see Carolina and Kentucky on December 22nd. I've talked about it before on this podcast. What a great way to spend the holiday then going to see the Heels and the Wildcats play in Chicago. Beautiful city, especially for the Christmas holidays when it's decked out in all the decorations, and it's going to be one of the biggest basketball games of the season. Visit HeelsTravel.com now or call 336-855-0060 to book. The package includes nonstop airfare from RDU to Chicago, 
transportation from the airport to the hotel, two nights at the Chicago Omni, right where the basketball team is staying. Great chance to see the Tar Heels on a huge stage against a great opponent in a great city at Christmas time. Visit hillstravel.com now or call 336-855-0060 to book your trip. It's a group effort creating the script that Carolina, I would assume. And also, this is a random question, and maybe it's for both of y'all, and it's just my curiosity. How many times out of 70 or 80 plays does a team like Carolina run the same play, like exact same play? How many times would they do that? Could they do that and, and likely get away with it, Greg? Uh, quite a bit, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, Larry Fedora doesn't use a ton of different concepts. Um, and you, what what Larry likes to do, and he, he's talked about this before, is they'll run basically the same concepts, but they'll just set up the guys in different ways. So you may you have a tight end attached on one play. You may detach him on another one. You may have trips to one side on one particular play, and then you may, may split them on both sides the next time, but it's the same play. Um, and so they, you know, from that standpoint, uh, I think it's a matter of they use a lot of the same plays as packaged differently. Um, but no, you certainly are not running 70 unique plays. You know, uh, Fedora's bread and butter, of course, is the, is the, the inside zone uh, run play. That's, that's what he likes to run. He runs that more than anything. Uh, and so you'll, you'll see that a lot uh, throughout but you, when you get into the the specifics of you know, down and distance, like we're talking about with the red zone, and you know even when you get into you know two minute, four minute, a little bit, especially with third downs and those types of things, those are very specific, limited plays. And Fedora, when I talked to him about the summer, you know, he, he's more than willing to say, hey, you know, we we may call the same play, you know, two or three times on a third down if it matches up well with what we're seeing. And that's part of it, too. And I think that's one of the reasons North Carolina's had success against Pitt since Narduzzi's been there. Uh, as you know, Nathan Elliott even talked about it this year, is that for whatever reason, Pitt has been willing to give UNC a lot of those screen passes early. And that's, that's why you know, Nathan Elliott had success this year. Uh, and a lot of teams don't give them that. And so if a team's giving you something you can execute, you take advantage of it. And you basically, it is like, like Madden. You know, if you're playing somebody else and they keep giving you certain looks and you've got a play that will work, we'll keep going to it. Uh, so it's, it does depend on opponent. I would like to, to hear Jason's opinion on that in terms of you know, how many different plays possibly like a Fedora type team would run. But I don't, I don't think that that play count or the, you know, the different play count is going to be as high as a lot of people expect. Jason, your thoughts there. How many different, and I know that you can split a tight end out or whatever to make it look different, but how many actual plays does a team like Carolina, Larry Fedora type offense actually run in a game? You know, that's a good question because it varies a little bit, and I don't know for sure how many Carolina tends to to carry in, and it's changed from last year to this year, by the way, because they're carrying fewer concepts into each game this year because they're they're carrying fewer overlaps in. So, you know, you can, you can call two or three different concepts that effectively do the same thing, and so, you know, they, they simplified a little bit so that they could get the young receivers on the field a little more and, and so on. Um, but – 
you know, a good rule, I mean, you, is that Lincoln Riley will carry uh, like 12 to 15 plays into the game. And that's it. That's it. Now, you might run those 12 to 15 plays out of 15 different formations. Or, you know, you add some motion to it. You, you know, you window dress it. You know, the old, uh, this is old Mike Leach principle that, you know, you can run a hundred different formations and, you know, run four plays out of them. And it looks like 400 plays to the defense. They have to prep for 400 plays, but you only have to run four of them. Well, you only have to run four. Well, the rest of it's just teaching a guy a new place to stand, right? It's a lot easier to teach an offensive player, a new place to stand than to teach him a new assignment. Whereas for the defensive guy, if you teach that offensive guy, a new place to stand and you run the same thing, that defensive guy has to treat it like a new assignment. So what you're doing is you're forcing defensive teams to get more complicated or, you know, to, to have to teach and rep a lot more against the different looks that you're going to run without having to run a whole lot different. But if you think about it, I mean, the running game, Carolina is going to carry inside zone, a, uh, you know, a power. They, they, they run inside zone and power are, are two that they, that they run primary. And then, uh, you know, generally you're going to carry an outside zone. They, they carry outside zone as well into every game. Uh, and then that's basically their, their core, you know, maybe counter tray. That's four run plays. And then you're going to have your specialty plays. You're going to have, you know, three or four possibilities out of the diamond formation, right? So then you're up to, say, eight total plays. And then you're going to carry, you know, eight to ten passing concepts, uh, and and that's that's probably it. You know, you might you might carry twelve passing concepts if you know you're counting some quick game stuff that you can call, you know, via tag or whatever. But that's what you're counting. That, that's what you're calling. So I, I would guess that Carolina, and this is just a guess based on what I've seen, but I'm guessing Carolina probably carries. If you count, you know, different run concepts, you know, specific ways, and you count, you know, invert uh, out of out of diamond, you count some of the specialty plays that they put into each thing. I guess they're carrying between 20 and say 25 plays per week on average into each game, maybe 30, somewhere in there, 30 total plays. That's including your shot plays, your, your, your specialty stuff. And, you know, a couple of, um, a, a couple, and maybe, you know, the, the main trick play that you've repped or two trick plays that you've repped over the course of the week. I, I don't think they'd go over 30. And I think that's probably a high guess. Uh, so, um, you know, beyond that, what, what you're what you're trying to do is you're using formation and, and motion to make it look like a lot more. But, you know, I'm guessing generally in the low twenties is probably the the norm for what they're doing. So Greg, to sort of tie this topic up, I'm I'm listening to you guys talk and I'm thinking, damn, that's complicated. And then this last part I'm thinking, no, it's not that complicated. Um, <laughs> and and so to both of you, and Greg, you can start it. Who has the tougher job, an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator, in your opinion? Uh, I mean, I, I think the defensive coordinator, just because defense is reactive. And you, you like Jason said, you know, the offense can, can really kind of pare down what they want to do, but uh, window dress it, I like that term, um, a bit more. And so that makes it a little bit more challenging for defense. And then, of course, uh, then you've got the, the – scramble ability of a quarterback which is going to be an issue against Syracuse uh, which changes the ball game completely because that that hurt North Carolina against Virginia Tech because you know Papuchas felt comfortable playing some man 
uh, with his front four, and that got him in trouble because you know, defensive backs had their their back turned. Uh, but but I think we need to kind of go back, and one of the reasons that spread offenses um, have kind of gotten to the point where they are now, where they're kind of limiting the plays, is they only get you know their players for twenty hours a week, and so you know what Fedora tries to do, and you know he's not unique in this, but the idea is if you can skim down, pare down the amount of plays that you run, and then you rep the heck out of them, right? We go to practice and training camp, and we're seeing the guys running the same play over and over and over and over again. And the reason why is you would rather be perfect at a few plays than average at others. But the idea being that if you can run this particular play uh, better than that defender can defend you, you have a little bit of an advantage. And that's all you're looking for, just a bit of an advantage. And so I think you know, offensive coaches, you know, clearly none of it's easy. Uh, but when you're kind of setting the uh, the you're setting the dynamic of, of what's going to take place on the field, you'd rather be in that position than have to be a defensive coach where you're having to be reactive to whatever the offense wants to throw at you. <laughs> Jason, you agree there? Well, uh, uh, the, my first question on, you know, on which one is harder is what, what's the personnel look like? Well, let's say equal personnel. <laughs> <laughs> See, it never really is, right? And, and you know, give me, the, give me the side of the ball with the better personnel. <laughs> because. But what you know, about taking Yorn, taking Yorn and beating you with Yorn versus uh, taking his and, and beating Yorn yeah, with right. his? That was, that was always, <laughs> first of all, that was always a joke. Uh, and second of all, it's never been a bigger joke than it is now. Uh, you know, you, you can say whatever you want, but I'm not taking, I'm not taking, you know, a jackass and going and winning the Kentucky Derby. Right. I mean, I, I'm not taking some broken down quarter horse or Clydesdale and winning the Kentucky Derby. It ain't happening. You got to have a thoroughbred to win that race. And it's got to be a really dang good one. And I don't care how well you train it. You ain't taking, you know, the, the, the same trainer that trained this year's Kentucky Derby winner and taking him and, and just giving him any old horse and telling him, oh, yeah, you're going you're gonna to contend for the Derby with that one. No, you better have a dang good horse. And, and, you know, that's why recruiting is the number one, you know, priority in college football. Because, you know, I, I, I was with Coach uh, Bobby Bowden this last, uh, this last spring and he had us, he had, you know, those of us in the room, we were, we were cracking up because he was talking about, it. he's like, man, my secret was, you know, get better players. It's like, you know, you, you get better players out there and, you know, you're going to win a lot more often than not. And, you know, when you got a lot better players, you're, you're probably going to win nine times out of 10. It doesn't really matter, you know, what you do, as long as you just get out of their way. So personnel matters the most, but I think both sides of the ball, present present their own unique difficulties because you know defenses can dictate too you know if you can if you have a matchup that you can exploit on the on the on the line you know if you've got a guy that can cause problems there that can cause all sorts of headaches for an offense where you have to you have to scheme around that you know you can try you know you can dictate oh now they've got to you know worry about 400 different possible permutations based on this but it doesn't really matter if they can single cover your guys so, you know, it really does boil down to personnel as much as anything, as much as we like to glorify. And I love to break down the X's and O's part of it. I mean, I've, I've, I've 
ever since I was a little kid, I've, I've fallen in love with the, uh, with the chess game aspect of the game. But, you know, that doesn't, you, you can't take away from the fact that, you know, it, when, when you're an offensive play caller, if you've got a guy out there who's just better than the guy across from him, you know what the best play call is? Real simple. Let that See, guy win his matchup. Yep. I mean, football's not that complicated when it comes down to that. You got to have a better player than their guy and let him and find a way to get him one on one with the guy that he's better than and then let him go to work. I mean, so, and defensively, you know, figure out where your matchups are and take advantage of those matchups to try to expose the offense. Cause the thing about the thing that I think makes defense harder. And, and I do think that this is one place where I think there may be an imbalance and defense can be harder is if one guy on defense screws up, it's touchdowns about half the time, you know, usually on offense, you can, you can have a guy bust here and there and, and it can still be a successful play except on the offensive line. And that then evens it out. So end of the day, uh, you know, I think, I think both sides of the ball present their own unique problems, their own unique difficulties. And you have a lot of preparation that you got to do to to be successful and to put your personnel in the best possible situation. And that's really what it's about is getting the best possible personnel out there and then finding ways to ask them to do what they do well and keep them from being asked to do what they don't do well. It's, it, it's not that complicated. Now, as, oh, by the way, one last thing you make only carry, I mentioned, you, you know, you may carry 22, 23 plays, 25 plays at most, you know, a lot of times in this kind of offense and, you know, Lincoln Riley, the, the, the word is that, you know, you can fit his entire play sheet for a game on a three by five card. Um, but the thing you got to remember is that those are your base calls. You can always tag it. If you've got a good scheme, if you've got a good system in terms of play calling, you can call, you know, uh, uh, you know, rifle, uh, zip motion, you know, to your usual, you know, rifle zip, rifle zip demon something like that that's one of the plays you call in but then you can go rifle zip motion demon uh z cross right and that so you can you can turn 15 or 20 base plays into effectively 100 just by adding a tag that changes one guy's assignment and that guy only has to know the assignment that he's changing and everybody else is running the same play. And that's, that's really how most offenses run these days. Uh, now at the NFL level, they're, they're tagging almost every player on every play, which is, which is the way that they get around that. But, uh, but that's how you do it in this kind of offense is, Oh, we're going to run, you know, uh, we're going to run double scats or we're going to run, uh, we're going to run snag, but we're going to run snag with, you know, uh, with y, snag, y po- uh, snag, y post or y shake instead of your usual snag. And so that, that's where you get, you know, some additional stuff and you can, you know, you're actually calling more if you're, you know, counting it that way, it's more than 20, but it's still really 20 base plays and you're just tagging one guy on, on, on a, on a play here and there. It is fascinating. I'm back on the complicated side of it. Greg reminded me of a story. Um, Carolina was playing FSU in 93 in Chapel Hill and Great atmosphere at night, by the way, and can't remember who was quarterback for Carolina. I guess maybe Stanisek or one of those guys, but hits Bucky Brooks on a pass touchdown. Carolina goes up seven nothing against Florida State, and this is back when Florida State's good. And 
It's also back when Carolina had to track around the field or what it, what was the remnants of a track, and you could stand on the fence with that usher running you off. And we're just screaming at Florida State sidelines, letting them have it. And uh, college kids, right? And yeah. this guy comes over, and this guy happens to be Derek Brooks. <laughs> and he comes right up to the fence, right up to the hedge, and it's right when Florida State is starting to get it rolling and just starts screaming, here comes the talent screaming at the top of his lungs <laughs> at a bunch of dumbass college kids. Well, I guess his class could have been his classmates, but you mentioned Bowden and the talent thing. Bowden certainly had it, especially back in those days. And and Derek Brooks was one pissed off human being at us guys. And uh, Florida State won that game 33-7. I don't think Carolina sniffed the goal line after that. At any rate, let, let's turn this to Syracuse. But let me sneak one last commercial in here, and then we'll be right back. Some brands offer you low finance, or cashback, or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar, with 1.91% APR, and €1,000 cashback, and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finances made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See reno.ie. Greg, I want to start with you here. Carolina goes to the Carrier Dome. First time, I can't remember Carolina playing inside in a while, unless it was a Georgia Dome or down there at the Mercedes Arena in Atlanta. But at any rate, not in Syracuse in a good while. And they're coming off the bad loss to Virginia Tech. They go to Syracuse. Syracuse used to be a sure win in the ACC, not anymore. Carolina's keys to victory, Greg, uh, let's start on the offensive side. Well, the offensive side is just a matter of, of finding some, some rhythm, some success. I mean, that's easier said than, than done. But Score. Score. Well, I was going there. Virginia Tech's defense is not good this year. And I think we need to acknowledge that. Uh, and – as Fedora even said it on Wednesday morning during the ACC teleconference, that that game shouldn't even have been close. Right? It shouldn't have been like a close win for UNC. That should have been like a blowout if they just take advantage of their scoring opportunities. And so Syracuse has a better defense than Virginia Tech, but it's not a great defense by any stretch. They have a good defensive front. Uh, but UNC has to capitalize. You know, when, they, when they get down uh, close to the red zone, Instead of scoring touchdowns at a 42% clip, which is what they're doing in the red zone, which is not good, uh, take advantage and score some. And Virginia Tech was in the red zone twice, scored touchdowns both times. UNC was in the red zone seven times, scored one touchdown. You're going to lose doing that. Uh, North Carolina <laughs> lost Saturday. They've lost a lot this year doing that. So take advantage of those opportunities because they're going to be there. And you know, on the other side of the ball, Eric Dungey, uh, is is a veteran guy. He's been around a long time. Uh, he's he runs the ball really well, uh, both with design runs and just with scrambles. And as I mentioned earlier, where where North Carolina got kind of got in trouble with Ryan Willis. Willis is not some running quarterback. I mean, he's a good athlete, but where North Carolina had issues is they played you know, a good bit of their their man coverage, trying to play behind that that defensive front. Uh, and as John Papucha said earlier this week. You know, when the quarterback takes off and you've got six rushing lanes and only four guys to defend those six lanes and you've got your secondary with their back turned, 
that's a problem. And you've got to figure out a way to adjust that. So how North Carolina defends his ability to be effective both passing the ball and running the ball is going to be a, a significant test for that defense, who has looked good at times this year. They look good against Cal, look good against Virginia Tech. Uh, but we've seen them look bad, too. So they've got to show they can put consistent games together uh, and then try to limit what, what Dungey can do. Jason, as far as the Ryan Willis deal and then with Dungey, how difficult is it to put a spy in? I know, uh, and this is like Madden again, right? You, you put a spy, you run the spy defense, and he cleans up all that stuff. But against, uh, no, excuse me, for North Carolina, is there an ideal spy for Dungey on that team if they wanted to do it that way? Uh, well, you know, again, it, it, that you you flag the right thing right away, which is personnel. Um, and you know, Dungey's a dang good runner, and 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 is capable of of running away from a lot of linebackers. So that makes it hard. Um, but I think you know, I think you can you can get away with. Uh, with one of the backers, uh, particularly, you know, I don't think you want to take three out of coverage. Um, but you know, maybe, uh, maybe, you know, my, my thought is that what you do is you run, uh, uh, you, you run some form of robber coverage a little bit more. And what robber is, is it's, is it's basically like man free, but things funnel to, uh, a, a, a linebacker. So instead of playing cover two, you know, behind, behind man defense, you know, so you could have two man under with robber. What you're doing is you're playing, uh, you're playing a, a single safety defense, but then you, you have that an, another free floating player in the middle of the field. And his job is basically to read the quarterback's eyes and rob anything in that intermediate area, you know, that, that the curl area to undercut any of that stuff and, and rob it. Uh, and you can do that with different players. I mean, I think Holcomb is a natural guy to do some of that seems to have some decent instincts for that. Uh, and what playing robber allows you to do is to use that player sort of in a dual purpose where he's not just spying. You can have him in some sort of coverage role, you know, for, for some of the crossers and things like that, that teams like to do against man looks. So he takes a lot of that away while you're trying to also keep his eyes on the quarterback so that when the quarterback, if the quarterback breaks contain, or if the quarterback starts to break up the middle in, in terms of a scramble, He's got his eyes on the quarterback and he becomes the uh, he becomes the spy. So it's not that hard. I mean, the, the difficulty of playing spy coverages or things that allow you to do that is, you know, what what spy what a spy requires is, first of all, you, you only need a spy if you're playing some sort of man. And the reason you need that is man coverage. Generally, you're not looking at the quarterback. You're looking at your man. And so if the quarterback starts to run, you can't see that. And so, you know, you, and you see this at every level where the quarterback will recognize man coverage, will get a seam and then just take off upfield because nobody's looking at him for, you know, 10 or 15 yards. It's an easy scramble. So then what you have to do is you put a spy out there that's a guy that's always looking at the quarterback that's accountable for that. And again, robber or rat, which is another variety of, of that kind of coverage. Those are, uh, are, are versions that, you know, you get a player to do that, but then what you're doing is you're always having to sacrifice from some other part of the defense. So, you know, in robber, what you're doing is you're putting that guy in the, in the middle intermediate area, instead of covering an additional deep zone or instead of bringing him as a fifth rusher, right? So you're sacrificing potentially a little bit of, of pressure on the quarterback or a little bit of additional deep 
security in order to be able to, to manage the quarterback uh, in, in the running game. So, and that's what the, what, you know, running quarterback will make you do. So I think they've got the personnel to be able to do some of it. You don't, you don't really want to make it so that one guy is always your spy because then you can, you can kind of scheme for that uh, offensively. You can recognize what they're doing there and then, you know, change your formation or you can, you know, tag something so that somebody's going to, going to pick that guy off. There's all sorts of different things that you can do to, to mess with that as an offensive uh, play caller. And that's the stuff that, you know, those are the little adjustments that you can make during the game. Uh, but that those are the kinds of things that Carolina is going to have to do uh, against Dungy. The other big thing against a, against a, um, against a mobile quarterback is that you have to be more controlled in your rush lanes, particularly the defensive tackles. What you try to do against a guy like Dungy is instead of those defensive tackles necessarily getting to the quarterback and potentially getting out of a rush lane to do that, you ask him to compress the pocket a little bit more and just make him feel uncomfortable because it's worse for the defense to let him break break the pocket than it is to actually have him throwing from the pocket. You'd rather actually have him throw from the pocket than to break break contain or break the pocket and beat you with his legs or beat you on the run you know, throwing downfield on the run. So you want to make sure that those edge guys are being really uh, disciplined with their, with, with their lanes. You, you know, they can't give up contain, but they also can't get too wide and go behind the quarterback. And those tackles have to be disciplined in where they're at. And then, you know, when I was at a clinic at Clemson uh, a year ago, they talked about how uh, Florida state defensively had done some things that had made it difficult for them to run their quarterbacks with all the twist games that they ran because they weren't, they could never guess that they had trouble guessing right on when specific twists were coming. And, you know, if you hit the twist just right, then yeah, it can be a big play. But if you don't, then that just creates a pile and your quarterback ends up getting stuck. So uh, that's another thing that you can probably bet that you'll see from Papuchas this week is some twist game, particularly on the interior, uh, some, you know, end, and uh, tackle stunts and things like that, where you'll get some twists to uh, to try to, you know, cause some hesitation in in terms of which lanes are going to be where from the quarterback. Greg, personnel will be huge, and right now I don't know that anybody knows who's going to be playing, especially on defensive ends. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think Strobridge can have a big game. What uh, had to be frustrating for North Carolina against Virginia Tech, and you see it all the time. And Jason, you mentioned this quarterback just flushing up the middle, and there's nobody there. And Dungey will do that left and right, and then he'll take on a safety or a corner um, and put a lick on them. So when I was thinking spy, I was thinking Dorn or Britt or even Dom Ross, but you're right. You can't really take those guys out of coverage. So, Greg, you know, it, it's going to be a tall challenge. And then you throw in the fact that if there's a couple corners that are out, the field side corner had a bad day against Virginia Tech. I mean, it's, it does not bode well for North Carolina's defense unless some of those guys that had success against Virginia Tech are on the field Saturday in the carrier dome. Yeah, and with the way that Syracuse runs their their offense, I mean, they're, they're up-tempo. Uh, Dungy's got a, a pretty good stat. I think he's 11 of 24. For I don't know, close to 350, 400 yards on passes of 20 yards or more. So you, they're willing to throw the ball down the field. When you put you maybe five wide receivers out there, four wide receivers and a tight end, uh, you can't afford to, to use one of your safeties in any kind of a spy 
setting. I mean, you've got to have those guys available for coverage. And I think that's one of the problems for UNC, like you mentioned. Uh, it didn't take Virginia Tech very long to figure out that, uh, okay, there's Greg Ross and there's Patrice Renee. And we're not going to go over here to where Renee's at. <laughs> and you know, with KJ Sells, I don't expect him to play this weekend. CJ Cotman's been hurt for a while. Uh, so now, I mean, you're, you're talking about a situation where it's probably going to be Ross again. And Syracuse sees that. And so you are going to have to protect him a little bit. Uh, th- that'll be interesting to see exactly what, what Papuchas decides to do in that, in that regard. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big challenge. And then you add into the fact that you know, J.K. Brett talked after the game about uh, you know, when the defensive front is getting the kind of pressure they got against Virginia Tech, that makes everything easier in the secondary because uh, you know, the ball comes out quicker typically. Or maybe it's not as good of a throw as it normally would be. Uh, and it, it lets the secondary feel more comfortable and have more time to operate. And just in terms of kind of from, from their vantage point, obviously it, it decreases the time for the offensive players, if that makes sense. Uh, and so when you take out, you know, maybe Carney and you take out Fox this weekend uh, with the, how the suspensions were set up and you don't have a Jalen Dalton, uh, Aaron Crawford, you know, struggling to get back. They expected him back by now only played, I think four plays against Virginia tech and uh, just couldn't make it, make it work. So when you take out some of those key pieces, then it gets even more difficult for the secondary. Uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot of challenges. You, If you're fully staffed, if you have all the personnel you want, there's enough of a challenge what uh, Dino likes to do. But when you start adding in injuries at defensive along the defensive line and suspensions along the defensive line and then injuries at quarterback, that makes things very difficult very quickly. So let's turn to the prediction portion of this show. Jason, I feel like I'm going to flip on a broken record, but I'll start with you again. Uh, Carolina, Syracuse in the Carrier Dome. Who you got? Um, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody that I'm going to pick Syracuse in this game. Again, given the quarterback uh, situation, I'm just not uh, convinced that there's any any real reason to uh, to pick North Carolina until I until I see otherwise. Uh, and Syracuse with a healthy Dungy has been a, a tall task. I mean, heck, they beat Clemson uh, last year. Uh, you know that th- they can they can be a pretty tough team when Dungy's healthy and when they're playing in the Carrier Dome. And you know, given the suspensions, given the quarterback situation, I don't see it happening. By the way, just for the record, in terms of quarterback situation, I would be real tempted right now if I were Carolina to just line up with Anthony Ratliff Williams. You mentioned it earlier in the in the in the podcast, but I would be real tempted to go to a base offense with Anthony Ratliff Williams, just running a bunch of zone read type stuff, and just you know doing basically what Baylor did to Carolina in the bowl game a couple of years ago, uh, running that as the base offense. You know, running the diamond stuff with uh, with ARW as as the quarterback because if you can't throw it. With another guy, you might as well put a guy back there who can be an elite runner and force teams to have to, you know, basically Georgia Tech you, uh, defend you like like your Georgia Tech. But I don't necessarily expect to see that. So um, I'm going to go with uh, Syracuse. Um, Syracuse 37. Uh, let's see, Syracuse 37, North Carolina 17. I tend to agree with you on the Ratliff Williams. I don't see why Fedora can't do something different. Switch it up. You know, we talked about there's not one mad scientist with a 400 page 
playbook, but it seems like it's too simple to for somebody to do for North Carolina. I think it would the way Williams, the way Carter, and the way Brown runs the ball it is it's the best shot they have. And if Ratliff Williams is out there on the side having to battle for fifty fifty balls every other pass, I don't see why not just put him back there with the ball in his hands every play or at least every four to five, you know, every four out of every five plays. But anyway, Greg, your choice. And here's what gets me about the Syracuse team is they should have beaten Clemson this year as well down there in Death Valley. But then they lose to Pitt. So it's like, what in the world's going on with the ACC? Greg, your pick, Carolina, Syracuse. Well, a couple of things here. Number one, uh, Syracuse, every team, when they start playing better, they have a, a monumental game where it's so emotional and it's like their their chance to go to the next level, and then they're drained. And you know, David Hale does a good job for ESPN. As soon as that Clemson game was over, he was like, the Pittsburgh game is going to tell us an awful lot more about this team than this Clemson game did. Just because you have all these emotions, then you go and you have to play Pittsburgh uh, and you don't have the same emotion. And then you know, there's that weird dynamic with Pittsburgh, too. They play up or down to the level of competition. I mean, you know, they've beaten Clemson. They beat Miami last year. Uh, you know, they play Notre Dame tight this year. And then they go and, you know, you know, North Carolina wasn't any good last year. And North Carolina won that game. And then, of course, UNC beat them this year. So that, there are all lot, lots of kinds of, of weird dynamics. With Anthony Ratliff-Williams, let me say this real quick. North Carolina. Uh, as running backs have done a good job this year. But we've talked about this before. It's not necessarily because the offensive line has been fantastic run blocking. They've done a pretty good job in pass blocking. But you're seeing a a lot of uh, the running backs doing a pretty good job of of having some contact and and still turning out some yardage. But we see a lot of like 30-yard runs, 20-yard runs, and then you're seeing a lot of negative one, negative two, one, two, and that's problematic. So the stats for the, the running game is a little bit, uh, I don't want to say inflated, but it doesn't show a, a true sign of how good that offensive line has been. And so I think if you put him back there with the intent of just running a lot, I don't know how successful that's going to be. Uh, and you know, he is a great athlete, so you maybe that's a, a good option to bring him in as a change of pace guy. All that being said, uh, I agree with I agree with everything Jason said. I mean, you talk about Syracuse playing Clemson tight. They scored 23 points against that defense in Death Valley. And that defense knew they had to win the game because you know Trevor Lawrence got hurt early in that game. Uh, and so I think the fact that this is a team averaging, you know, I think 43 points a game, uh, they've, they've put up points on pretty much everybody. I don't think North Carolina has near enough firepower to answer that. And so uh, I think North Carolina is, is going to lose this one on the road. Uh, I've got it at 38-21 Syracuse. I make my pick. I'm going to do a caveat. Uh, pick with a caveat if I'm since I'm the host. I'm going to say 40 to 13 if Carolina has more pass Ooh. plays. Whoa. More more if Carolina throws the ball more than they run it 40 to 13. If Carolina decides to run the football and has some success, I'm going to say 31-21 Syracuse. Do you know how Larry Fedora's offense works, Tommy? Do we need to go over that? 
I believe I figured it out, but I, I'm, I'm telling you, at some point, Lucy's going to leave the ball down, and I'm going to kick the field goal. <laughs> Boys, it's been fun. It always is talking to you guys. Um, sometimes it gets quite repetitive, I think, uh, because of what we're talking about, the subject matter, but I thought this one was a good one. Jason and Greg, appreciate it. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for listening to the Inside Carolina podcast presented by Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Get 15% off your online order with the promo code HEELS15. Go to jerseymikes.com slash order now.